this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I graduated the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for your comments. I really appreciate it. Hello, Gypsy. Thanks for listening and reading the transcripts. And today we're doing a part two. And with me again from a few weeks ago is Michelle Krasniak. And uh, Michelle, welcome. I wanted to give some context, but say hi, first of all. Thank you. It's good to be here again. Yeah, appreciate you taking time on uh, Black Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's a good thing. It keeps me from shopping too much. <laughs> good. Well, for the listeners, I wanted to give some context, maybe behind the scenes on how some of these podcast episodes develop. And in some cases, um, I've done zero prep, like with uh, Kelly from Murph's Hot Sauce. I literally met her seven minutes before and then we hit go and then other guests like Ellen and Teresa have given me outlines and notes which is awesome too and that's just all about how I want them to feel comfortable and in this case Michelle and I had talked about one thing that I knew we were going to talk about which was her food truck experience in Costa Rica and then I, I've told a lot of people about this episode because it came in live and in the moment. And this is why we're doing part two is something that had happened to you when you were younger. And uh, I, I'm struggling for the adjective because it was, I'll just start with impactful to me and not necessarily what happened to you, but how you handled it. And uh, I'll also put a link to episode one for those listeners that want to talk about it. But with that, I'll shut up. And then what would, what are we talking about today, Michelle? What is part two? We are talking about my experience with true crime, how I, I became a, a story. I became my own Dateline episode, basically, <laughs> about 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The bombshell I dropped at the end of the last episode about um, the, my, uh, an incident where I was kidnapped and sexually assaulted um, 20 years ago, 20 years ago this year, um, July 7th of 2001. So um, yeah, and kind of, I didn't really get into, get into the aftermath, which I think is, is pretty uh, interesting um, because kind of like in preparation to, to speak about it today, which by the way, it's the first time I'm ever talking about it publicly. Wow. Um, Thank you for it, doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's not because I was, you know, ashamed or scared or anything. It's just not really something that you bring up in conversation, <laughs> uh, kind of randomly be like, yeah, hey, I'm Michelle, good to meet you. Yeah, how's your day? Yeah, so uh, 2001, I was kidnapped and sexually assaulted and yeah, crazy trial and all that. Um, so uh, it's, uh, bear with me as I recall the details of this. We have all the time you need and <laughs> just, uh, just let it flow. And, and just for the listeners too, my uh, interest in this uh, was less about the, the crime portion of it, but about 
Michelle and her mindset and her, her being in the moment and thinking, aligning with so many things I've studied in terms of survival and uh, just not thinking any further than what's going on in the moment. But um, yeah, with that, uh, so what happened next? What was the, the trial and the aftermath and I guess the impact on you? So it, it, it was very interesting um, because after I went to the police station and I, and I stayed there um, pretty much maybe about four or five hours, I don't remember if I mentioned this before, but they had brought me back to the scene of the crime. Once I told them that I dropped all my stuff uh, in on the ground, you know, to kind of prove that I was there, they brought me back to the scene of the crime. And, you know, nowadays you, like, I look back on it and I'm like, I can't believe they actually did that because they drove me in the back of um, a police car, basically like a detective's car. So I didn't have, they don't have um, handles on the inside. So I was literally trapped again in a car with a man I didn't know. (laughs) I mean, detective, you know, he's a detective. So obviously I was in a safe place, but having just escaped from being uh, held against my will uh, and I couldn't get out of this back seat. So even in the moment, I remember thinking, this is not like they shouldn't be doing this like this is really this is the worst thing that you can do for somebody who uh who just experienced that but um yeah so at, you know after that uh and they found all my stuff and they processed the scene and we went back to the police station and um the detective his name was detective casper he was very very good um you know very empathetic and sensitive to to everything I never went, ended up going to the hospital. Um, I didn't, I didn't at the time feel the need to. Looking back, I know, I, I know I was in shock because they typically will bring in kind of like a, a victim advocate uh, to, to be with you during this whole process. And I believe they, if I remember correctly, they did offer that. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Let's just, you know, let's just do this. And it's kind of set the stage for this whole thing is Michelle's fine. Michelle doesn't need support. Michelle can do this on her own. And um, I remember leaving the police station and I was driving back to where I was living and it was about an hour and a half drive. And it was on the throughway, the New York State throughway. And I was going like 100 miles an hour. And I remember thinking, this is so stupid. And I don't know why I was thinking this, but I think everything was kind of starting to hit me. And I was, almost in a manic state because I remember thinking well let him let him stop me I'll just tell him that this is so stupid I can't believe I'm admitting this I'll just tell him that I just survived uh you know what I just went through and they'll let me go it it's just a stupid <laughs> I, it's just the stupidest thing you know it's a 21 year old female who went through a really traumatic experience you just the things that go through your mind during those times are very uh interesting to say the least and um, one thing I didn't mention, and, and not many people know, is that um, I had had a falling out with my family prior to this, mm. and we hadn't spoken in two months. So I didn't call them when I was at the police station. So that's why I was at the police station alone. I didn't, I didn't call my parents, my family to be with me. 
And um, they were local though at that time. They were in my okay. hometown where, where this took place. And um, I wasn't going to call them. Then I remembered he had taken my identification. So he had my last name. He had my address. He had like all that information. And I, I couldn't in good conscience not warn them because this guy's still out there. Uh, no idea who he was, you know. So he was still out there. If he got word that I had gone to the cops, who knows what he would have done. So uh, I called them. Uh, when I got home and it's kind of one of those like how do you start that conversation like how do you just <laughs> I, I mean it's not it's, you you just can't get on the phone and be like hey how you been the last two months yeah yeah like good well and something happened so I kind of wanted to work you know it's just I don't even remember the conversation I there I remember that I told them and I remember pretty much mm, all of them, they, yeah, they all started crying. So my mom, my sister, my dad, I have an older sister. And um, I remember one of my parents, I can't remember who it was, um, apologized to me that they weren't there to protect me. And that actually broke my heart mm. um, because I think it just shows how the different ways that people internalize uh, traumatic events, even if they don't happen to you, like if they happen to a loved one, I think it's interesting how people internalize that and how people, you know, kind of process that on their own. And, um, you know, one of my parents, they immediately went to as a parent, I should have been there to protect her when, I mean, nobody, nobody could have been there. So that was, that was heartbreaking. And, you know, they wanted to come out and stay with me and being Michelle, I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, meanwhile, I'm sleeping with butcher knives under my, <laughs> under my pillow. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I literally had knives hidden all over the house uh, as it, like, that's kind of how I, I survived. Um, so they, they actually sent it kind of like a, a compromise. They... <laughs> They sent my dog, they sent my childhood dog to, to be with me. So I'm like, no people, but I'll take the dog. So, uh, so Rocky, our beagle came to stay with me and he hated every minute of it. And he destroyed the house. And after like two days, I was like, mm, you need to come pick up Rocky because this isn't working. But um, so, yeah, so life went on. Um I was, I got into therapy. I was showing all of the signs of, of PTSD. Um, I would, you know. What were like some the, of those signs? Just like. Hypervigilance. You... Okay. Hypervigilance. Um, I would, I was renting a place at the time and I asked them to put, you know, extra locks on the doors. And uh, even though, you know, he had no idea where I lived, uh, and in the grocery, I remember being in the grocery store and it was this, I was living in this kind of small country town. So it was a small grocery store and I was going up and down the aisles and I noticed this man following me. He, he probably wasn't following me. He was probably following the, you know, the store, the, 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 uh, the way the store is laid out. Like normal people is just, you know, it's kind of uh, just people go the same direction. 
but it it made me freak out like I like confronted him and just made me do kind of crazy things um I was 21 I was you know tall blonde attractive of course people are going to beep and catcall and stuff as I'm driving down the street and I would I would I would like yell back I would get confrontational and uh swear at them and I was you know, looking back now, I was just like, I was becoming unhinged. Um, it was like any man was a threat. Any, you know, no matter what position they were in, they could be a stranger, they could be the male person. Anytime I was one-on-one, so to speak, with, with a man, um, I just went into, you know, immediate survival mode. And um, my survival mode in those instances where it was to get kind of aggressive <laughs> I never got in a fight but I definitely definitely uh, gave them peace of my mind so they were like crazy girl we're gonna leave her alone <laughs> so go back before the the abduction you know, let's say you're walking down the street and you get catcalled what would you have done prior to that ignored it just would have been probably laughed Honestly, just sort of been like, it may even been like, oh, is it cute? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's not be too hasty. Let's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 21 year old single female, just, you know, college girl. So uh, just have fun with it. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of a, a big change. Another change is that I started wanting to, I started trying to blend in more um you know baggy clothes and no makeup and unwashed hair just kind of trying to make myself ugly uh I think because you know as an adult now I don't I mean I still see myself kind of as a kid back then but looking back now and all of therapy and all of the you know reading that I've done I know that sexual assault has nothing to do with looks or you know sex or anything like that it's all about power and it's all about control and stuff like that so um you know but that was my way one of the ways I coped with um trying to basically be invisible um when it came to being looked at what was the first time where you felt that your old self had come back do you remember through the the therapy or time and where you sort of felt as you did before or have you ever um I don't you know what it might have been once I you know met my who ended up being my husband and had that started having that stability and that um building that trust of trusting that he would be around to protect me and and stuff like that so okay. it, it was years so probably maybe four or five years wow and at what point in that relationship did you talk about this event with him it's probably oh, that's a good question I don't remember it was probably a while because back then there was still a stigma attached to it. 
and nobody talked about it. And um, so I didn't want to, I didn't want to change how he saw me, basically. I didn't want, because nobody ever wants, nobody ever talks to me about it. I don't know. I think they're probably afraid that, you know, it's too painful or I don't want to go there. But so I just never have, but it's just because I don't want to make anyone else uncomfortable. Did you have dates that you brought it up and didn't work out when you were seeing somebody and you talked about it and then did they ghost you? Yeah, actually, uh, I was dating somebody at the time, uh, somebody different, somebody from college. And I told him when I got back to the house, you know, he was one of the people I called and uh, he basically, I'm pretty sure he broke up with me on the spot. Uh, He got really quiet and uh, basically he said something along the lines of, oh, this happened to my cousin. I know how it really, you know, fucked her up. I can't do this. So, yeah, I got broken up <laughs> either that day or short, very shortly thereafter. Wow. Well, it just goes back to your point about the perception, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that's kind of a good way into the rest, the aftermath of everything. Um, because, you know, starting maybe about a week after the detective would come up, basically on a week weekly basis and show me photo lineups of people and I you know I remember there were um you know three three rows of three pictures and I would look at them and I'd say no he's not there no he's not there and detective you know bless his heart he'd be like are you sure are you sure and I'm like yes I'm not I'm not pointing the finger at anyone that I am not 100% positive it's him I'm not doing that so it was there's probably maybe I'm on maybe the fourth one, maybe about a week or I'm sorry, a month to six weeks after it happened to me, I get a call from him and he, he was like, Michelle, I got him. And I was like, okay, all right. He's like, no, really? I got him. I got him. And then he told me the story about how this person was caught uh, out in Wyoming um, two weeks, two weeks after what happened to me, two weeks after my incident. And he was found with, he had like a, a bag of tricks. Uh, he was found with another, he had another victim and he had my social security card in his possession. So that came out there, contacted the FBI because they're like, we have another victim on our hands. You know, it's, they went there like, we don't know if she's alive. We don't know what's going on. So they contacted the FBI. My name was in the system uh, because of what happened to me. And so they got in contact with my detective, Detective Casper, and sent this guy's mugshot. And I picked him out right away, right away, Uh, which is interesting because, you know, don't want to give any spoilers, but uh, that was kind of one, my identification was one of his points of my photo identification was one of his points of appeal that he tried to appeal on Hmm. Uh, didn't didn't work but um so yeah I I, there was a name and a face to to my attacker so this was two weeks later he was in Wyoming okay yeah two weeks later he he uh was in Wyoming 
and grabbed another woman. And basically in the same way, uh, she was walking. I believe the story with her was that she was she'd gotten in a fight with her her uh, boyfriend or fiance at the time. And <clears throat> excuse me, this guy saw this. He saw everything go down. So she started walking away. And when she got further away to where, you know, the boyfriend couldn't intervene, he grabbed her. Uh, and um, he had, it had escalated from me. He probably, honestly, I was such a pain in the ass to him <laughs> that he corrected all, of, it just sounds horrible, but I think he corrected all of his mistakes that he made with me um, because he just wanted to get rid of me because I was really a huge pain in the ass for him. And I took the fun out of it for him. So she was, uh, she was a different kind of, of victim. Um, and he was driving a van, actually, at this point. He had gotten rid of, of the car that he had me in. And he kept her handcuffed in the van for hours. Um, and he had a bunch of sex toys and stuff in, in that bag of tricks. And he assaulted her for hours. Um, and then she, I know all of this basically from newspaper clippings and I'll get into why, but um, she was able to signal, they stopped for breakfast and she was able to signal to a waitress that she was in trouble and the waitress contacted law enforcement and rescued her. Do you know what she said or what she did at the restaurant that tipped him off? Um, I think she kind of, I, I don't know for certain, but secondhand, I wasn't allowed to sit in her trial. Um, uh, so I don't know. All I know is from newspaper clippings and kind of what I heard uh, from their investigator. But um, I think she said something like she like made eye contact in some way hmm. um kind of like kind of like you see on a tv show i remember uh i want to just briefly jump off that for a second i remember an instagram post from some bar somewhere that said and it was a, a paid ad that was directed to their female customers it said if you ever feel safe or if you feel that your your drink was tampered with or something like that that they had a a special order that you could mm -hmm. talk to the wait staff about and um i've seen things at stores that are and, and i again i noticed these things most people don't there's a, something called a code atom at department stores grocery stores where you can just say that and then they'll actually lock down the store if it's if, if you or somebody else thinks that it's a kid leaving with somebody that they shouldn't be so anyway I, that just popped into my head when you talked about mm -hmm. the the signal and the code word that would be if there was something that was that became like amber alert in the the lexicon of uh restaurants and bars and things that yeah anyway yeah sorry. yeah oh no you're fine <laughs> um so, so yeah, so he, he was captured out in Wyoming and uh, I was contacted shortly thereafter by their investigator who asked questions about you know, my attacks and, and what he, he did with me because there were a lot of similarities. And so I gave him the story and 
I'm not sure how long it was. It was a few months, maybe six or seven months when they asked me to come out for the trial to testify at the trial in Wyoming, um, but it was kind of, yeah, in Wyoming, okay. but it was kind of like testify with an asterisk. And, and the asterisk was that he was claiming consensual sex. So it, it, it was a he, uh, his word against her word thing, as these always, I shouldn't say always, as these very often turn into. But Wyoming, at, at least at that time, had a law uh, called prior bad acts, where even if they had not been convicted of a crime, they could introduce, uh, like, um, the prosecution could introduce these charges into a, a, a current case and to show history. Um, so they flew me out there kind of as their secret weapon, so to speak, to um, keep him off the stand, basically, to keep him from claiming consensual sex um, because he was going to testify and you know say all that uh, until he found out I was there. And then he, it kept him off the stand. So I was never allowed to, I, I wasn't, I didn't testify, I didn't get to sit in, in, on that trial, but my mom did. My mom, she had gone with me and she sat in on the trial. I did get to meet the other victim. Her name's Tina. She wanted to meet me. And at the time, I don't think I'd ever met someone so broken, like it's so hard to explain. And, and I don't know if you've ever met anyone where they're a shell of a human being. You just look in their eyes and, and you're like, this person is destroyed. Like their soul is just destroyed. And that's what I saw. And it broke my heart. We weren't allowed to be alone together. Obviously we couldn't talk about our cases. So we had, you know, the, the prosecutor was there and uh, she didn't even really want to talk. She just wanted to be, to be near me and to meet somebody who had experienced him as well. And uh, so, yeah, so we, we just chatted and um, I'll never forget. Um, I can still see her in the corner of the booth in this restaurant and she was trying to make herself so small. And it made me think back to where I was trying to make myself invisible too. You just kind of want to disappear. And, and she was at that point. Um, well, you talk about uh, if I've ever met anybody that's been broken like that. I think there's been a few times in my life where I've felt that way for sure. Um, and I just went back. I haven't thought about this memory in oh boy, probably 25 years or so um, when my mom died, that there was a friend of mine, Michelle, actually, who had lost her fiance, like right about the same time. It was just, he was in a car accident. I lost my mom, my mom to cancer. And she was the only person that just because of the, the recency and the intimacy of the loss that she and I hung out a lot. And it was, it, it, that's what reminded me of your story with Tina was that we didn't have to say anything. We didn't have to collaborate or 
there are often times that we would just, uh, we would just walk, we just go for walks. And it was truly the only person that got it. And there was such a calm in not having to ask or be asked how you're doing Mm -hmm. or, Hey, what happened? It was just this immediate bond. I think the ultimate humanity in it too. So as you were talking about that and that, that took me back to that moment. And I know what being a shell feels like for sure. Yeah. She's actually, you know, I actually looked her up not too long ago, tried to, um, and cause I know her, her full name and I couldn't find her, but I would, I'm going to keep trying. I, I didn't really, you know, I, I can, you know, log into places and see if I can find her. If somebody exists, I can find them unless they truly don't want to be found. <laughs> and, uh, I want to know more about that. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm like, like the, the FBI woman, you know, usually like a woman is on the level of the FBI when it comes to finding things, I can find anything about anyone. Ooh, I'm um, going to put that in my back pocket. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I know I really should be a PI. Uh, but so she, so I, I remember I was not allowed to be in the trial, but I could be there for the verdict. So I went in and uh, sat with, with my mom in the courtroom in Wyoming while they read the verdict and he was guilty on all charges. And I remember, I don't remember what went through my mind, but all I remember is that I just broke down and ran out of the courtroom and I locked myself in the bathroom. What was Uh, the emotion you were feeling? I, you know, I don't know. I, I think looking back now, and I don't know if it's, if I'm, you know, projecting now, but I wonder if it was because she got her justice and I hadn't had mine. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, they had charges against him. He was going to be extradited back to New York to face those charges. So it was only a matter of time until he, until my trial, whether or not he would have been convicted, you know, remained to be seen, but she, uh, I was happy for her. I'm genuinely happy for her. And I can say this with complete honesty that even then I felt like she needed that justice more than I did. I felt like she, I felt like she needed him to be serving her sentence, her sentence, so to speak, more than I needed him to be in prison for mine, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, He was, he was convicted of everything. And I think the charges equal like 120 years in prison. He was, uh, um, put in for, uh, which given the history of him, uh, is nothing because I don't want to get into a rabbit hole, but he's actually a convicted felon and had just gotten out of prison about a month prior to grabbing me. He, is a lifelong felon, attempted murder, um, assault with a deadly weapon, robbery, escaped. He escaped from prison in Florida. So that's fun. (laughs) Uh, So a really, really bad guy. And uh, so he's in prison for the rest of his life. And um, after that, a couple months later, he was extradited to face 
charges in my case. Well, let's uh, let's get into that, and then like, how did how did that trial go down? How did Dateline find you? I want to know all about that. Oh no, it wasn't Dateline. It was uh, I survived. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh uh, no. Um, so the trial—that's another thing. I don't remember the trial. I wasn't again. I wasn't allowed to be in there for the. I remember the the grand jury proceedings more than I, I remember the trial and um, for the trial I wasn't allowed to be in there but my family was they kind of the district attorney put me in a in a room I think it was a law library in the courthouse and I sat there for I believe the trial lasted three or four days while everyone testified until it was my turn to testify and um I, it's a complete, it's so weird to me that I have zero recollection and, you know, therapists have told me that it was, um, like a disassociation, uh, like a disassociative state that I went in because seeing him and talking about it was so traumatic or was going to be so traumatic that I completely just wasn't present for it and it it was the weirdest thing um I do remember one thing and I don't know why this sticks out in my mind and I don't remember if this was the grand jury or the actual trial but his attorney his defense attorney was questioning me and um like I mentioned before they went after my identification of him so he asked me to go through the story. I was walking at night and, uh, you know, what time was it? I was, you know, two o'clock in the morning. Was it dark at two o'clock in the morning? And I just looked at him and I'm like, <laughs> and I was like, it typically is, typically is. And I do remember like there being like Snickers, uh, like, like the jury started like Snickers, like people started like laughing underneath their breasts when I said that. So I'm like, such a dumbass. Um, uh, again, I don't, I don't remember if that was, that might've actually been the, the, uh, grand jury proceedings, but yeah, I was just like, oh, this is going to be fun with this dude. Um, but yeah, I testified and I, I don't remember breaking down. Um, I don't remember, um, I don't remember anything. And it's so weird because I have an excellent memory for the smallest details like I can remember everything about the attack I can remember how he smelled I can remember his voice I can remember the feeling you know stickiness it was July in in upstate New York it was so humid I can remember exactly what I was wearing I can remember the feel the how my shoes felt like I can remember every little tiny detail but I cannot remember the trial I just think that's so interesting I can relate to that a little bit because I've told people that I can process powerful emotions or information, but not both at the same time. And so when I say powerful emotions, it's more in in the context of, I've worked very hard to not be someone that gets upset easily or ever. And these, this, this would be in the context of say something like, uh, like a romantic relationship or something that's a powerful emotion. And 
as you say, the, the disassociation, I've experienced that in minor comparison to you where like, I'll remember everything about how I was feeling and things like that, but what was actually said, sort of the facts behind that, no, no clue. And I'll tell people that going in, it's like, look, we're going to have like an in-depth, powerful, emotional conversation. We'll probably need to take some notes if you want me to remember something coming out of this. And um, I think one of the other books that I had maybe referenced in episode one was the science of fear. And they talk about the amygdala and they talk about uh, interviews with uh, soldiers or police officers. And there was one that stood out to me is that this officer remembered in slow motion, he, he described them as um, coffee cans floating by, and he could actually read this title stamped on the bottom of this coffee can, as he described it. It was actually the shell casings from the pistol being, because that hyper-focus, right? That's what the amygdala, and again, not a neuroscientist, not a doctor here, but just from my amateur reading, that's what the brain does in those situations is shuts off everything that it perceives as non-essential. So the fact that um, you were in a hyper state, hyper emotion, hyper focused, it, it makes sense to me that you don't remember any of it. That, that makes complete sense because I can, I can literally still feel the gun in my back. Mm -hmm. Just 20 years later, I can still feel the gun, the barrel of the gun in my back. And, uh, so that's, that's very interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, which it's interesting how that comes across to other people though. Yeah. I was very, I was truly concerned. And I believe I mentioned this in the previous episode, I was really concerned about how I was perceived because the tri- uh, the local paper covered the trial. They didn't mention my name, but they said something along the lines of, as the victim matter-of-factly matter recounted how the defendant asked her if she valued her life. So I, I don't think I told, I don't think I mentioned that part, but you know, in the car when he had the gun, basically he had the gun to my head, he asked me how much I valued my life. And so as I was recounting that in the trial, um, I, I apparently said it matter of factly. And so that's, and what was your was, answer? So matter of factly. Uh, um, to, to him? To, to both, to both questions. Yeah. Um, well, to the, to, his name was Dale, to Dale Dean, uh, you know, I, I got into the whole, oh, I love my family and, you know, the whole basically begging for your life thing. Um, but to the, I, I, I just became really hyper aware of how I was being perceived and how I was coming, I wasn't coming across as enough of a victim, if that makes hmm. sense. I wasn't yeah. crying. Totally I wasn't does. a mess. I wasn't. So it was a legitimate concern, at least of mine. I don't know if the, the state, the prosecutor, district attorney, if he was concerned, it wasn't like you need to show emotion, but would they believe me? And, you know, looking back now, what a horrible 
position that assault victims are put in when you have to be concerned that you're not enough of a victim and it wasn't bad enough and you're not crying. So are people not going to believe you? And because uh, these are the, the wounds, these are the things that people deal with that are invisible. So um, yeah, so that's how I was portrayed in the paper, which, which was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's kind of like, I look back now and I'm like, you know, people report on what they see and I, I was matter of fact, I, I was, you know, that's why I, I can look back now and be like, I don't think I got emotional or choked up or anything, because if that's how I was coming across to everybody, um, then that's kind of how I was. I was matter of factly describing everything that's such a good point because it should be a compliment actually that you could handle yourself or you were coping better with it or you could not be upset about it and not let him have more of an effect on you and Mm -hmm. which those are all positive things but in the context of a, a, for lack of a better term, I'll call it the performance for the jury. Not that you're making things up, but that I your, know what I mean. your, your character was uh, not devastated by this to, and I know you didn't see Tina's trial, but those are all good things that you were able to do and it should not impact that. I, it actually kind of, it carries through um, in, it carries through to the public's kind of opinion of, of everything because right after the trial concluded and he was found guilty and I actually before we, we talked, I had to look up um, there's not a lot of stuff on my case online. And what I did find, and I didn't know this, actually, I just learned this, is that he did appeal his conviction because I had no idea. I could not remember what charges he was convicted mm. of. So I found his um, New York State uh, appeal papers online and, and learned what he was convicted of. But after the conviction, somebody wrote into the hometown, my hometown paper, and she actually gave her name, and I still remember her name. I won't shame her. I should shame her, but I won't. Um, she talked about how the county trying him, putting him on trial for my crime, was a waste of taxpayers' money because um, he had already been convicted in Wyoming, and he was he was 120 years, never going to get out. Why? Why even bother? And I responded and I told the paper they could use my name. They didn't end up using it, but actually I responded and my mom responded. And in my response, I said, you know, imagine, imagine walking down the street or you or a female loved one walking down the street and Dale Dean was set free because his his conviction in Wyoming was overturned on some kind of technicality and he was free. This career felon was free. Violent felon was free to pray 
upon women again. It was clearly only a matter of time until he, he did it again. I said, so instead of looking at it as a waste of money, you should be thankful that they were willing to do that to protect the public from any, from him ever seeing the light of day again. And uh, I said some other kind of snippy things that didn't make it into the paper. They heavily edited what I wrote. <laughs> but, but they, because I was basically like, listen, bitch, you know, who are you to, to say it's a waste of money, you know? And I think I said, I said something along the lines of, I pray that you or your loved ones, you know, if you never have to go through this and never have to tell these, tell the story in front of strangers and be judged on how you aren't reacting the way, you know, people think you should be because you're not like, I pray that you never have to do that and never, nobody in your family ever has to go through that. And my mom, she, um, in her response, she actually talked about, you know, I'm not, she said something along the lines of, I'm not sure if you are a mother yourself, but if you are, try to imagine your daughter, this happening to your daughter and all you want to do is, is to comfort her, but she locks herself in, in the bathroom and, you know, she's having, you know, I, I don't remember what my mom said, but basically that is like, picture that picture, not being able to protect her from the incident to begin with, but then also her shutting down and not even being able to connect with her and, and console her after the fact, because you know, so much was done um, and so much damage was done that I literally just shut down. Well, that proves my point that uh, there's always been trolls out there <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. not just the social media. It was, it was the, the town square back in the 1600s yeah. and it was the letters to the editor. And what a, what a clear example of zero empathy and misplaced priorities but mm -hmm. um anyway that's that's a side topic but that <laughs> that that trash has always been there unfortunately but yeah it i give the paper a lot of credit because they uh they had a weekly feature called hits and misses and that week they one of the hits was the fact that the district attorney press charges uh, and went through with the trial for this case uh, to make sure that he would never be free again. So I give them, a, I give them credit for that. They're basically like, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so the, the, the trial's over, he's locked away. What has been the last, you know, 20 years of your life? How is that? Is this an ongoing thing that you manage? What has been effective? Um, it, take me through it, that. It's been interesting because in the, in the aftermath, so in the, I would say maybe five years after that, people were concerned that I wasn't dealing with it. And so it, it became a thing. Anytime, anytime I, I went to a therapist, it, 
it became a thing because I would be able to talk about it. And I, I to this day, I hate starting with new therapists because <laughs> it's, it's kind of, I, I honestly, I saw a I meme mean, one time about this woman put together a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation of the first 20 years of trauma of my life. And she's like, anytime I, I start with a new therapist, I just give them a PowerPoint presentation because I'm brilliant. sick of going through everything. I know, isn't it? Because I'm so, I'm so tired of, I shouldn't say I'm tired of it. I get the same reaction every time I tell the story. And it's basically, you know, mouth the gape, like, are you fucking kidding me? And, you know, and I, I always find myself being like, yeah, but that's 20 years. That's fine. That's fine. The trauma now that I'm dealing with. Um, so there was concern that I wasn't dealing with in the moment. And they put me in, I shouldn't say they put me, they... I went through call, um, EMDR, I'm sure you've heard of it, um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, because they were thinking that I wasn't, I was still in that hypervigilant mode, survival mode, wasn't processing the, the emotions that came, were supposed to come with it, or that came with it. So I did a, a, I did a number of, few months of that, and I remember, um, there being one breakthrough and, and I'm kind of laughing about it now because I never found myself crying really after it. I never really cried over it. And one EMDR session, so dread, one EMDR session, a single tear came down and it was like, whoa, breakthrough. She had a breakthrough, everyone. She had a breakthrough, everyone. And it was just like everybody kind of like, like just grasped onto that one tear. And I was just like, oh, I'm cured. I'm never going to hear people. <laughs> and uh, I, I actually think that was my last EMDR session because it was like, all right, you're fine. Moving on. Um, but it, it really hasn't, it, it really hasn't affected me beyond the first kind of three or four years, kind of going back to the, once I, you know, met my, my husband and became, my life became very stable and became um, almost boring and monotonous. And it was fantastic. And it was healing and just being with somebody um, who, you know, we took care of each other and that was healing in and of itself. So um, my every, I remember on the 10th anniversary. So 2011, I will, I, uh, received a, a bouquet of flowers for my parents on the 10th anniversary. And, uh, I was very surprised because as I mentioned before, people didn't talk about it with me. And, and I know that it's, I know that they don't want to upset me. So I don't, it's not any, I don't think it's anything nefarious or, or mean, or they don't care. I, I just think that it's just to protect me. So to receive those flowers was, was great because it kind of opened up that line of communication around. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to mention it. It's okay to bring it up. You know, I'm, I'm okay. It's not going to, you know, make me, break down or or lose my mind or anything like that uh in fact it's actually good for me to to talk about it 
So, um, but I never really talked about it with any of my friends. Um, so it's kind of, I don't want to say it's the elephant in the room because it's not like it's awkward and people have to watch what they say around me. But I think it's, you know, at this point, everybody's moved on. I don't think that that people are used, they see me and they automatically like, oh, that's her, that's, that's what happened. Uh, but in the, in the years after, I think that was probably a very, there was a lot of eggshells. It may not be an elephant in the room, but it, it might be a goat in the room. <laughs> it's like that. It's like that. Oh, this is awkward. So, well, I think what your point here is that it's okay to ask questions and mm -hmm. it's been something that has transformed me in, in doing uh, some of the more powerful episodes of this podcast and just in conversations. And this, this covers, I've had topics with African-Americans and just, and they say the same thing or people that are uh, LGBTQ or anybody in situations like this or cancer or trauma, it's that it's okay to ask questions. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's still on the responsibility of the uh, asker to be as sensitive as you possibly can and not be blunt or anything like that, but just understand and what they've said, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that you're curious, you want to know. And mm -hmm. if you're coming at it from a place of compassion and being genuine, then the questions I think are okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And even curiosity, uh, if I would, you know, I would love to talk to people about it and just tell the story, even if it's, even if it's, you know, to, to young women about, God, the world is so different now. Like I can't even, it, it's just so different. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. There's no social media. And it was just very, it was the beginning of the internet. It was 2001. Um, so all this information sharing that's, that's available now, it wasn't there back then. So I would have loved to have, you know, been able to speak to other young women about the importance of, at that time was being aware of your surroundings. And um, actually that, that was, there was one thing that I did blame myself for. And that was, I knew, but I knew better than to walk alone at night. So that was something that, that I did struggle with. Like I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't think it was my fault per se. I wasn't like, you know, but I walked when I, I walked at night when I shouldn't have. So talking to young women about, you know, the importance of, of that type of stuff, but at the same time, where I am now in my, in my life, I, I feel like it should not be on the women to be, to, to learn the, have to learn these lessons. And for somebody to be like, don't walk alone at night and always stay in groups. How about we talk to our, our men, our young men about not seeing women as, you know, conquest or sex objects or things that you, you know, play things. How about we teach men not to be rapists? 
how about we go that route as opposed to feeling the need to teach women not to wear sexy clothes or not to walk alone at night or um and that's one thing that if if I hold any anger because of this whole thing it's because in general women are not safe to do things on our own we can't go hiking on our own you know without putting ourselves in danger on walks like I you'll never find me walking you know I remember I used to do trail running and and I distinctly remember being like I can't believe I'm doing this and because I'm going to kill myself number one because I'm constantly looking around looking behind me I'm going to trip on a root or something so just women that's what angers me is that women can we can't feel safe doing things doing normal things that we should be able to do right <clears throat> yeah your your clothing and your location on the planet should never be you should never be held responsible for that no no nor should, should be you able to do what we want exactly exactly and it's not the case and it's it's unfortunate and it's so sad that that we can't i mean even if we are hiking with a dog it doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter it's like you always have to just we always have to be hyper vigilant about our safety and i guess i i learned that the hard way yeah well, you know, and I think about that too. I've got a daughter, she's 19 and she, even from the moment that she was born till uh, I'm such a better person. And I'll also say a better man because I've raised a daughter as well as a man. And as she is becoming an adult woman, these are things that I try to be conscious of and aware of, and at least in my my sphere of influence, like the, the, the women that I interact with to put myself to be more empathetic with respect like that. And this makes a ton of sense because when we had, um, talked about recording episode one in my universe, I'm used to people coming to my house that I don't even know to record. And I remember I invited you over and I think your response was, I'm not, (laughs) no way I'm coming over to your house. I was like, Hey, that's totally fine. Like that's, that's totally cool. And it, it, um, it makes sense in the context of this conversation, but it also, gives me more empathy into how that's perceived when I'm talking to particularly female guests about coming on and and coming over is that like in my world, it's like, yeah, I've uh, interviewed 130 people and there's been (laughs) zero fatalities, but that's my perception. My perception doesn't matter. It's your perception that, that matters. So, um, I just only bring that up and just now that question has a different lens applied to it, but yeah, you're right. Like it, like from your perspective, like, who is this dude? <laughs> like, I'm not going over to his house. <laughs> yeah. I was like, mm, no, but 
<laughs> I mean, it's not, and, and I wasn't like, ooh, creeper. Um, it, it's, it's been so, I know that it's not, um, I know, I know you didn't mean anything by, and, and like when, you know, on, in online dating and when the guy's like, hey, you want to go on a hike or I, I can pick you up. I know it's coming from a well-meaning, well, online, I shouldn't even say that. Maybe I shouldn't even go down <laughs> for the most no. part, um, <laughs> for, for the majority, vast majority of people, I think it's coming from a well-meaning place. Um, it's just not. And some people would do it. Some women would do it. And yeah, I, I, to them, I'm like, Ooh, okay. Um, I mean, to this day, my friends and I, we, whenever we go on a date, public place, we always share our locations with each other and uh, always check in, you know, I'm going here, send a picture of people, take a screenshot, you know, we're Mm. very, very careful when when we meet people even out in public well and thank you for that uh different viewpoint because it's something that i've never ever even considered but that's something that no woman's going to abduct me (laughs) can't can't pick me up first and foremost but um not to make light of it, but it's just something that, uh, you know, for in my world, it's something I just never consider, but the, your perception is so valuable to me because again, not changing who I am, just having a better understanding of somebody else from their viewpoint. And that's, well, that's great. Yeah. And also I, I hope you would, you take this stuff forward when speaking with your daughter uh, I'm, I don't know if she's used apps, dating apps or whatever, but, you know, they're good things to, to kind of pass along to her and be like, share your, if you don't want to share your location with dad, share your location with a friend, do something. Yeah. So, you know, people always know if something, you know, God forbid something bad happens, there is a trail. There is something left behind to, God, I watch way too much true crime something left behind <laughs> to uh, prosecute to catch the person if, if something um, got to happens to you. And it's so annoying that we have to live this way now, but it's, it's the world and um, it is what it is. Well, I'll ask her to listen to um, both of these episodes. Cause I, I try to reserve that for uh having her listen to strong women. And I would definitely say that you are 100% in that category, but also very tactical when it comes to something important like this. And as you were talking about something happening to her or my son, that, that is, if I had one fear, a true fear on this planet, is it something that I would witness something happening to them? And that, going back to Tina and being shattered that despite everything I've ever been through, that would definitely do it. There's speaking about speaking of Tina, uh, when I was trying to locate her cyber stalking her uh, unofficially, uh, (laughs) there there are actually a lot of news articles on her case. So she did, I'm, I'm very, very proud of her. She did, end up speaking out publicly the papers do use her real name 
And when, uh, after the verdict was read or after, it might've been after his, he lost his appeal in her case, I think they, they contacted her and she spoke out about it and she sounded, she sounded good. You know, she sounded like she was on track and healing. And I was so happy to see that because that was, you know, stark contrast to the person that I encountered in the fall of, I think it was 2001, um, or maybe winter of 2002 when, when I went to the trial. So, um, she's at least, at least based on the newspaper clippings from, from 10 years ago or so she was doing, she sounded good. Maybe that could be her legacy. Like I'd mentioned before about the, the drink order, maybe that could be something that could become, uh, a thing is that you go to a, a bar or a restaurant and you see if they have like a Tina Martini and that's, that's a code word for, uh, someone in distress. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that'd be interesting. And that's, I'm going to keep looking for her. I'd love to, to reconnect with her to see how, how she's doing. And, um, I actually, it's crossed my mind and, and, I fight the urge, but living in Colorado now, you know, we're very close to Wyoming. I have considered on more than one occasion going up there to see him. So he's incarcerated in Wyoming and not in New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he was never, once he was, after the trial, once he was convicted, he petitioned the court to be returned, <laughs> to be returned to Wyoming. Um, so side note, when you come from a small town, everybody knows everybody, you go to high school with either them or their siblings or whatever. So the people working at the county jail at the time knew me, knew my sister. So he asked the courts to send him back to Wyoming because he didn't want to be in the county jail anymore because they were giving him a hard time uh, because they knew me. So in the judge was like, yeah, no, you're saying so (laughs) (laughs) poor guy, poor guy. So he he had to stick around uh, for the sentencing. Um, But once he was sentenced here, he was shipped back to Wyoming. What would you, have you thought about what you would say? I, you know what, I, it's not, it's not one of those things where I'd go in and be like, you never, you didn't break me and whatever. I won all that stuff. I'm curious as to why, like I've always been fascinated Hmm. by, by the criminal mind and he is truly a lifelong criminal. Like you can go online and see his Broward County arrest record. And it actually started in I believe it was 1981 because it was like two I was like two when he started going to prison so he has you know he's been in the system his whole life and so I'm very curious just about his kind of like his mind like what was going through your mind when you saw me and you know what was going through your mind when you saw teen just curious and that might sound like really weird but I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's, 
a show. Maybe a listener is a producer and wants to put together a show of me going to <laughs> to to uh, see him in prison in Wyoming. I think it's the it's the most powerful question you could ask, the most impactful question you could ask, because it it was the the moment that things changed for both of you, and mm-hmm. it was the decision that he could have kept driving or he did what he did. And, Mm -hmm. um, going back to those disaster books, it's always one decision that starts the chain of dominoes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Because if I, you know, there were so many, what ifs over the last 20 years. So what if I, what if the cab, it wouldn't have been a a hour and a half wait for the cab and I was able Mm -hmm. to get a a cab ride home? Or what if I went to after hours with my friends? Or what if I, as soon as I saw him, I crossed the street? There's so many, so many what ifs. And, you know, I've, over the years, I've thought about writing a book on it, but I don't want it necessarily to be a, a straight kind of like nonfiction book about the event. I, I want to explore that, that what if, because another thing that's fascinated me and I always go back to, and I don't know why I do this, but if I, knowing what I know now, knowing who I am now and knowing how the event changed me, would I, if given the choice, would I choose to go through it again? And that's, you know, not to get all like philosophical, but no, that please. question has run through my mind so much. And the answer has always been, yes, yes, I would. I would, as crazy as that may sound, if I knew that I would be okay, like if, a, you know, somebody whoever came to me and an angel came to me and said, okay, you're, you'll get through this. You'll be okay, but it's, it'll suck. Would you do it again? And I, I would, I would. Yeah. Um, I heard an interview with uh, Seth. Uh, who's the Seth that did family guy, not Seth Meyer, Seth Rogen, Seth McFarlane. Uh, yeah. Seth McFarland. <clears throat> he was supposed to be on the Boston flight out of um, on on 9-11. And I think it was on Adam Carolla. And he had just so quickly like had zero impact that the the what ifs that he just was like, eh, yeah, just didn't happen. And uh, that stuck with me so much because I've had um, I didn't. I don't think I ever talked about this, but, um, over father's day this year, I was out in Nebraska for a bike ride and had just gotten some news about a friend. And my head was definitely not in the moment. I was definitely not in Nebraska, not on the bike. And I don't want this to sound as close as it was, but it was a, it was a near miss, um, and I had was on a gravel road crossing a two lane highway and looked left, looked right. Maybe I looked left, maybe I looked right again. And I went and I had got both tires across the asphalt was on the dirt. And then something that came behind me 
And again, I don't want to over-exaggerate it because there was no screeching tires. There was no horn. And, but it was the fact that I didn't perceive what was happening. So I, I, I'm going to go back next year and do this ride and look at that intersection because something was off is either a hill or it was the truck was going 80 and a 55 or something. I don't know, but didn't even notice it. And for about an hour, I was thinking I would have been turned into salsa on father's day. It was on that Sunday. And I've, that was in years and years ago, I had to actively work through the, what if the, what if the, what if like, you know, like a a car runs a red light or something like, Oh, and I would just have a string of what ifs. And I've had to actively work so hard to stop that thought process because what if can outweigh the what is and that, that I'm not going to call it a near miss anymore. I'm going to correct my perception of it. The, the miss, right. And again, I don't know how close it actually was, but that sort of um, reset that operating system. I'd worked so hard to correct because of the, the, the impact it would have had. And so it's, I, I can tell that story now somewhat dispassionately, but that's one of those things. Now in comparison, I was driving I-70 about a month ago and was the, the hardest I have ever hit the brakes in any vehicle I've ever owned for as long as I've been driving. <laughs> like wow. there was, there was uh, like a, a fender bender in front of me or something. And um, I was, I may have had both feet on the brakes. I don't know, but I had it to the floor and ABS was going. And I think only because I had just put on new tires. Thank you, Karen, for the, the Venmo for that. But, and I remember coming up and just getting closer, 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 and ended up still having with the brakes on having to miss by a foot, the car in front of me and go into the other lane. But that like I looked around, I didn't feel any impact from the back, just drove off a couple of deep breaths. And like that, I, I know what if there, I mean, I know the car would have been totaled. I may have been hurt. I don't know, but like that one, you know, was back to normal where it's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so I, I completely empathize with you on the, the what if part. And, but I think that the, the most powerful thing that you've said is that you would still go through that. Yeah. Especially now. And I think I mentioned this in the previous episode where the, at the time, the statistic was that one out of every four women would be victim of sexual assault in their lifetime. And I got, excuse me, I got thinking, let's say me, my sister, my mom, and I don't know, a friend or an aunt or something all in a room, would I, I would still choose to do, I would do it because I wouldn't want them to have to go through it. I, because I, I instinctively knew that if I made it out alive, I would be okay mentally, emotionally, you know, 
eventually okay. And then I would take the, take the lessons away from it. And I did. And that's why I would always choose to do it because the person I am now is so different than the person I was then. It taught me, you know, this level of resilience and being able to take care of myself and self-confidence. Like, James, if you can talk yourself out of that, like I should go into sales. I mean, I could talk anyone into anything. <laughs> if, I, if I could talk him out of, you know, if I could talk my life out of something, um, just by being a pain in the ass, like that's kind of my claim to fame is annoying the shit out of everyone. So they're like, just go, just go. Uh, <laughs> you would crush in sales. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that a lot. Like I, I would, I was talking to a friend, not to get off track, but I was talking to a friend about that. And cause I've always been in marketing and she's like, well, have you ever considered sales? I'm like, I can never do sales. I'm not, you know, not enough of a go-getter. She's like, you'd be surprised. I <laughs> really think you'd be raising my hand again for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. That's what, I, that's what I've told the the sales reps that I've led is that, you cannot fuck this up any worse when you go into that first meeting because they're not buying from you now. Don't be afraid. There's, there's, you're at zero. You can't screw this up. So yeah, the fact that you've <laughs> been in a car with a gun to your head, what is a sales meeting with a CEO going to do to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, you're house money there, Michelle. You're yeah, a I'm gangster. Like, whatever. Well, it's actually <laughs> kind of funny because Never, and I did talk about this in therapy one time, people don't, people in higher positions, so CEOs, CFOs, whatever, they don't scare me. I know people get like super nervous about executives and, and stuff like that. They don't scare me. Like I've never, I, I, the person at a cocktail party who is in the corner talking to the CEO or, you know, talk, yeah. I can talk with anyone and they've never scared me. And I always kind of wonder being shy, because believe it or not, I am pretty introverted where does that come from like where does that you know don't give a fuck attitude come <laughs> from um because and then so I kind of wonder like you know d- did this kind of instill a level of confidence in me or this is it truly like I don't give a fuck like I'm not I'm not I don't want anything from you I don't we're just chatting um but it's kind of funny and I think it annoys some people because I think <laughs> I think some CEOs do like that power. Yeah. Like I've been lucky enough, like my current CEO, he's the most down to earth person you could imagine. But some, some CEOs like that power. They like that kind of, you know, feeling people are nervous or scared around them. So I, when I take that from them, they, they get a little, maybe I'm, maybe I'm projecting, but. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that coffee emergency. <laughs> <laughs> We'll make a note. We'll have the uh, the editor take that out. (laughs) Well, um, thank you for the first conversation and thank you for this one. And um, I had pondered this one a lot because uh, I am not a fan of the, the true crime things and it, I have to be very careful with my emotional diet. And so I wanted to make sure that, just for me that I focused on you and your mindset over the, the details of 
the events of, you know, that night, but, um, I just, yeah, I so admire your attitude and your philosophy and it's just, uh, I just sincerely appreciate you sharing it. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. I hope that like your couple of your listeners have sent great messages. So I really appreciate the, the support and the yeah. kind words. Yeah. You're, you're doing great. And let's start getting you some sales resumes out there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm, I don't know. I, I love my, the writing and the, the marketing. Awesome. But I need, I need you sales guys to start working those leads, man. You're killing me. <laughs> killing me. Well, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for doing this again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple transistor or spotify and i know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest and if you do please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com thanks for listening